0: Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to our latest episode of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's biweekly podcast featuring interviews with movers and shakers from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're pleased to feature a discussion between Lion Tree CEO, Aria Borkoff, and Moody's media and telecom expert, Neil Begley. Listen in as they discuss the driving forces behind this year's busy M&A cycle, the rising bond market, and the tremendous amount of change facing the TMT industry and beyond. We hope you enjoy this in-depth conversation, which can't come at a better time.
1: Welcome, everyone, to our newest episode of Kindred Cast. I am pleased to be sitting here with neil begley who was a senior vice president on the media and telecom team at moody's which is one of the leading rating agencies and i'm actually uh, proud to say that i've known neil really since the day i got into the business because you started at moody's uh, i think in 1994 just roughly the same time that i've come into the business and we worked together because obviously i was doing the high yield bonds research back then, but also focus on media and telecom. So I feel like this is a podcast guest where we go back to the beginning of our time together. And and I appreciate your being here with us.
2: Thank you very much, Ari. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Neil, as I mentioned, has been with Moody's since 1994. He covers a large portfolio of media, entertainment, and sports companies, including Disney, Alphabet, Facebook, Fox, Netflix, Lionsgate, Activision, Blizzard, Comcast, and many more. I want to have you with us today, Neil, and On behalf of Moody's to talk about what is often an overlooked part of our ecosystem, which is the bond market. The debt markets are sometimes, in my opinion, taken for granted that they're always there. It's been a very uh, bullish period for issuance of debt and rates have been low. There's a thematic that I think a lot of people have in the business now, which is this waiting to exhale dynamic of when is the cycle going to turn? And I think when people think about the cycles turning, and we're not making that prediction today necessarily, although I want to hear your views, people always think about whether there are uh, too much capital chasing too many deals. And when they say those kinds of things, it's all about the equity markets or the sources of private capital on the equity side, or talking about you know, balance sheets being strong. But a lot of people don't really focus on you know, the underpinning of our world, which is the debt market. Just to give our listeners a sense of the, the size of the market we're talking about, the total US corporate bond market today is roughly $9 trillion in size, roughly double where it was just about 10 years ago. And in terms of new issuance, companies coming to market with new bonds, whether it's investment grade or high yield, the size of that market has been an increment to $1.6 trillion over the last year which if you think about that versus 2008, it was only about $700 billion in 2008. So there's much more of a propensity to issue debt today in the bond market, high yield and investment grade, than there was a, a, only 10 years ago. It is a, an important factor, which is why I want to have you on here. And talking about the debt markets and different opportunities within the debt markets, at Liontree, we have developed, along with our partners at Searchlight, a debt product called Lighttree, which is a solution for companies particularly in the growth industries and the tech industries that provides debt capital to companies that have otherwise relied on just the equity markets private or public as a way to um, create less cost in their balance sheets and uh, and from a founder's perspective or entrepreneur's perspective having uh, less dilution as it funds its growth where in some cases at that part of the spectrum there's been a heavy reliance on equity funding and not as much sophistication on the debt side. So uh, our Lighttree product really is designed to lend and to provide support for companies that are in their growth phase in a more balanced way than just the equity markets. And so we're very optimistic that uh, that will become uh, a solution that will be helpful for our companies And companies that are in the smaller and high growth side, particularly as the market finds more dislocation and the equity markets become more choppy uh, on the private side. So it's something that we're also participating in at the firm here today uh, as a solution. So anyway, all the backdrop for having you on and thanks for being here. And how do you think your job has evolved at Moody's over the last 24 years since you've been there?
2: Well, we're still looking at M&A as being sort of the major disruptor to ratings in my world, in my portfolio. But broadly speaking, the portfolio has become much more dominated towards high yield and private equity high yield in particular. And that has sort of left us with a barbell scatter of the ratings with a handful of investment grade, very large issuers. And then mostly the others are single B. And by far, the volume, not only in media, telecom, but broadly in corporate finance is is in that single B range and dominated by private equity acquisitions. And more recently, I think, as you mentioned, this market has gotten essentially fairly frothy almost. And a lot of the differential between investment grade issuance and high yield, a lot of it looks the same. There's few covenants and really what divides these levels of, indebtedness and credit quality is really just duration and security. So that leaves folks with a lot of risk in their hands and, you know, little power on on the side of investors to do much about it because there's so much more demand than supply.
1: I think it would be helpful for everyone to understand the true difference between investment grade and high yield in a traditional sense. The investment grade market is a much bigger market than high yield but high yield has been growing substantially. So, as I mentioned, if I take the $1.6 trillion of issuance in the bond market overall last year, the split is roughly about $1.3 trillion for investment grade and roughly $300 billion for high yield. But that's been growing 10x over the last 10 years and growing fast today because, as you mentioned, the rates are low and, and obviously the covenants have been more
2: flexible than they used to be, right? Really, we're just talking about a level of credit quality And so you tend to have companies with stronger balance sheets, stronger credit metrics, like leverage and things like that in investment grade, more diversity, more household names. And in high yield, you've got smaller companies. You might have some fallen angels, businesses which have been facing significant secular pressure. You also might have, you know, essentially private equity acquisitions where essentially there's very little equity in those transactions. And so even if you have larger companies, they just have a lot more credit risk associated with them. Yeah. But even the investment
1: grade names today are taking on more debt than they have probably in the last 10 years for M&A transactions. Obviously, you've seen the at and the Time Warner situation where they have roughly $190 billion of debt overall. And so companies, even in investment grade, high quality companies are comfortable taking on more debt today.
2: And just to put that in some perspective, several decades ago, we had probably 40 AAA corporates. We have about four on the planet today. Because the credit spreads have essentially narrowed so significantly, what companies have to give up in terms of financial flexibility as they move up the credit scale has diminished relative to what they get in terms of interest savings. So you have a gravity of a lot of investment-grade companies towards an optimal capital structure, which tends to be in the BAA space, which is sort of the lower quadrant of investment grade. Yeah, it doesn't pay to be high quality anymore. Unless, in fact, you have some other vision of your company. Where you know you just really are opposed to debt, or you're essentially a family-controlled entity that you know is concerned about taking more elevated risk. Perhaps that's a a mitigant against getting larger, or frankly, taking on even more debt.
1: Yeah, I'm assuming none of the four that remain are in our space of media and telecom.
2: No, they are not.
1: <laughs> Since the very beginning of the high yield bond market, at least that I've seen, the media industry has been a very big issuer and participant in the credit cycle and therefore able to take on more financial risk given their innovation, their growth, et cetera, and not necessarily hanging on to the AAA kind of vision or ratings. I think that
2: some of the industries that we've both covered for so long have qualities that not many other industries have had. You know, They have a predictiveness. Uh, they have a cash flow level and margin levels that a lot of other businesses don't have. And a lot of them weren't really very cyclical. The cyclical businesses, I think, frankly, when they became more levered, they suffered for that. I saw them suffer for that when I was a banker in the early 90s. And half the broadcasters you know, ended up in workout. And, and then we, we were actually one of the first to predict the uh, similar downturn in the consumer led downturn through the financial crisis. And again, we saw over 20% default rate there. On the flip side, cable companies, they just cruise right through. So a lot of the businesses that have those types of attributes where they aren't really affected by employment, housing, all those types of things, non-advertising related in general, or if they're growing and they grow through a cycle. And there's a lot of media businesses that fit that description. And they do very well. And they can take on more debt, more leverage, particularly if they're not capital intensive.
1: So help us unpack that because when we talk to CEOs and certainly when the CEOs presented conferences, the one constant is that uh, we're in a time of change and that there is a tremendous amount of uh, business evolution going on among media companies, telecom companies, obviously technology companies are all about innovation and change. So how do you reconcile that shift in business models to -to direct-to-consumer and other dynamics with the predictability factor that you're looking for from a credit perspective?
2: Well, first of all, I just want to say nothing endures but change. (laughs) We've seen this playbook before with publishing, newspapers, and the important thing sort of taking from an old hockey player is, you know, skating where the puck's going to be. Biggest concern is that everybody knows where the puck's going to be and no one's skating towards it or very few companies are skating towards it. So that is really the, the issue because, again, we expect there to be constant change, constant innovation. I think that's a primary concern right now, frankly, when you think of strategies. Who's embracing sort of where things are moving? How has the business changed from the standpoint of control and power? Just taking, for example, the video business. You know, Historically, you know, the power of what we were going to watch, when we're going to watch it, how we're going to pay for it, it's all been controlled by the studios, the network aggregators, and the distributors, and that has now shifted to the consumer, and the consumer knows what they want, and now they have optionality to take advantage of that. And so that is an example of a strategy where we see the difference between some companies that are aggressively pursuing the future and others that are standing by and saying, I think we've got a good business. We're generating lots of cash flow. Uh, Or they don't have the equipment necessary, so to speak, to embrace it or to attack it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think some of what you're referring to, could be considered kind of equity market risk factors in terms of what the value of the enterprise or the equity could be in the future, given certain investment parameters and changes in the business overall. But you could draw a distinction between what is an equity risk and what is a credit risk. Because even though companies are transitioning their business models in a lot of ways, as you mentioned, the underlying cash flow stream, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, can be more secure along the way, which obviously can support the leverage and the debt. Is that the right way to look at it, or does some of that equity risk kind of creep into what you're looking at?
2: I think it really does. I think the fundamentals of the business are very similar. We are very interested in companies that are growing and that uh, have a strong equity base to attract additional capital. We have very similar metrics uh, in terms of sort of the non-credit metrics that we look at in terms of fundamentals in that regard. But then beyond that, knowing that the bondholders are really just kind of hoping to get their money back someday and they're not getting all that benefit of the equity growth over time, there's certainly a level of conservatism in that space where you really don't want outsized risk on the balance sheet. In other words, debt is probably the only thing that can take down an otherwise healthy business. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where it takes a step further out than so the equity markets, which almost like that some level of additional risk on the balance sheet to push their returns. So I think that's where sort of the rubber meets the road and the differences between bondholders and equity holders. Don't you think so?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think debt is oftentimes overlooked and most of the time taken for granted that there's a deep pool of capital there. And obviously, from an equity perspective, it could be very helpful in gearing up a stock. A little bit more risk can be helpful for a business that's growing and businesses doing well because obviously you're improving the returns for shareholders as a result of it. The fulcrum dynamic of that is if if you become overweight on that risk or over levered against that business, then obviously it could all fall apart. And so I think you have a, uh, a thankless job because effectively you're, you're monitoring the downside risk, but not necessarily looking at all the upside potential. And I think that's why every few years, it's important to check in. I would say every five years, but now we're 10 years into a cycle and I'm just, hoping that the bond market is still very healthy and that the credit qualities of these companies are still very healthy. But obviously, I want to get your perspective of how close to the line we are.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they're certainly healthy. There's no shortage of companies coming in and seeking out first-time ratings. We're still seeing lots of acquisitions funded largely with debt. Everyone's starting to talk more about the end of the cycle, though. And uh, oftentimes, as things get more and more aggressive... It feels like you're getting closer to a cycle. But at the end of the day, it usually takes something to disturb the markets, scare people, undermine confidence before ultimately we see that end.
1: Yeah. So from just a pure debt perspective, you're not
2: overly concerned at this point. Well, I'm overly concerned about the lack of protections because you know that when you have a period of time that's gone by with very little protection, that when the cycle does turn, your default rate's likely to be higher than it has been in the past. That's the primary concern, is that recoveries are going to be weaker. Protections,
1: meaning covenants and the way that the securities are structured are very flexible today versus having uh, controls or the opposite of flexibility from an issue perspective.
2: Correct. And exactly. It's the mirror image of that, right? And if a company is not performing very well, you know, the last thing you want to see them do is take out dividends for example you'd rather see them reinvest that money into the business or to f- lower leverage lower the amount of debt on the company to you know survive longer now if the company's facing some kind of secular pressure you'd probably may want to step in and see if you know you can recover a lot of your investment as a bondholder or as a or as a bank and without any ability to do that through these covenants, through these you know, sort of maximum ratios and things like that that are maintained in the indentures or have been historically that don't exist so much now, you kind of have to wait till the debt matures. And that can be way off. And so that's really you know, the crux of the issue around.
1: Well, it's a function of what the market will bear, right? Rates are relatively low. Like you said, supply and demand are in favor of the issuers today, given the fact that a lot of capital in the debt markets are chasing very few opportunities, and therefore rates have been lower and easier to fund for the companies. What gives there is obviously the covenants and the flexibility goes up. Covenants become more relaxed and flexibility goes up for the issuer's perspective. And that is a risk factor down the road in a sort of an academic sense. But based on today, the bond market doesn't seem to be that concerned about it. Are you?
2: It's very hard to predict a recession, and so you think of what other events could occur and, and you can't really predict those types of events where there's an unexpected explosion in a certain industry or business and you know an Enron or a WorldCom situation or anything like that. So the only thing that people really get concerned about are things like quantitative easing has built up a large portfolio within the government and that they'll start selling a lot of those bonds and that'll affect the supply and demand factor. And that, that's probably the only thing that people really think of in the next couple of years that could have that effect, that chilling effect on that supply and demand equilibrium or benefit that we've been seeing over the last few years.
1: That's a market cycle coming, but how about for our industry on the M&A cycle, when companies are funding deals with a lot of debt and they come to you and said, are you comfortable with this deal? Obviously it's case specific, but what do you say?
2: I'll tell you that the most popular rating that we see these days is in the single b space, and that 's pretty darn leverage that 's pretty low in the, in the categories, even low among the high yield range b one and b two and even b three if you look at a chart of the in terms of issuer count, you see that 's where the spike is It suggests that there's a tremendous amount of weakness by issuer count, you know it 's not weighted for how much debt they have, so that says that we 're concerned
1: so that 's what you look for really when you 're um trying to assess the overall access to the capital markets measured by, you know, size of the debt and obviously the interest rates being low and the access to the market right now is plentiful. But the way to reconcile that versus your view of risk, different from the the market's view of risk is based on the ratings itself.
2: Yeah. So it's also the return that folks are getting with those ratings. The difference between, say, you know, a lower end investment grade Yield and, and what someone might be getting in their coupon for high yield, it's a couple hundred basis points oftentimes. It's kind of startling the difference in risk, which can be multiples difference. And so that's not something we, we get involved in. Obviously, you know, the, the the market sets those rates, as you said. But it has become a very deep high yield centric environment. And that's reflected in Team Amin, where we have a half dozen analysts just covering media and telecom four out of five or five out of six analysts are doing largely just high yield. And do you find that companies that
1: are in the investment grade space traditionally by rating category, now for the right opportunities in M&A would be willing to go down into the high yield territory to get the right deal? So you think about AT&T buying Time Warner, obviously they're solidly the investment grade, but really stretched the balance sheet to do it. Or if Comcast were successful in buying Fox, would have really put on more debt on the company to do it. Do you find uh, the concept of falling angels, as we call them, from investment grade to high yield, being more prevalent these days based on the opportunities and the fact that the rates are low?
2: I don't think so. I think that's where a lot of these companies draw the line, partially because that's kind of what they're made of and they want to sleep at night, and partially because that's their brand image for some companies and others because, frankly, the technical surrounding the, the size of their balance sheet would make it prohibitive. There isn't enough depth, for example, to support AT&T's $180 billion of debt in high yield. The largest high yield issuer out there of debt is probably a fourth or fifth of that size.
1: Yeah. And even in the investment grade side, I think one of the largest issuances uh, ever has been Verizon back during the Vodafone takeout. And I think that was almost like a $50 billion investment grade deal or issuance. So I, I think there is a limit to the depth of both the high yield market for sure and even
2: the investment grade market. And that's largely why Charter structured their balance sheet the way they did to try to remove some of that overhang risk and getting at least a couple of the rating agencies to bless their secured debt with an investment grade rating so that that wouldn't be counted against them when they go to market with the high yield portion of their balance sheet. It's a technical issue.
1: Pure innovation from their CFO. It
2: it really was. (laughs) And somewhat inconsistent with how Dr. Malone has managed a lot of his other investments, where he's been comfortable with high end of high yield to bolster his returns, not wanting to take excess risk down in the single B space. But the level of commitment required to be investment grade often makes him uncompetitive against private equity when competing for transactions.
1: Well, I think it's a tip of respect to... Obviously, the what we talked about, which is the depth of the bond market and the different pockets of where the bond market is today and where it's going to make sure that that flexibility exists. That's prudent.
2: I think so. Look, I, I said it earlier. Uh, one of the only things that can bring down an otherwise healthy business is, is a lot of debt. Some people respect that and have experienced that and others have not. You look at the history around uh, 21st Century Fox and Mr. Murdoch, his experience back in the early 90s. Scarred him, I believe, for life. He was, yeah, he calls it a, an uncomfortable period. <laughs> <laughs> he was counting on banks to continue operating his business within weeks and days. And uh, I know the first time that I had the privilege of meeting him in my first week of work at Moody's, in fact, you know, he said, look, I'm never going to be dependent upon a, a third party for my liquidity and uh, and for my future. I will say it's an unusual company in my portfolio I've covered since the very beginning. It's the only company that I've covered that I've never had to downgrade. Uh, it was a high-yield company at the time. This uh, is News Corp. This is, well It was News Corp, and now it's 21st Century Fox, and it's climbed all the way up to BAA1, which is probably about three or four notches higher than what it was 20 years ago. That does factor in for a lot of companies, particularly controlled entities.
1: Or entrepreneurial companies. Entrepreneurial
2: right? companies. But, you know, when you have professional management, they tend to see what the market's doing broadly and say, oh, you know, I'm going to get punished if I do something that's in excess or, or not enough of what they're doing. And so I'm going to mimic the market. And that, unfortunately, just to respond to even an earlier comment you made, is has caused a lot of companies to move down the, the spectrum, take on more risk, both within investment grade and, frankly, even within high yield.
1: Yeah, like a good CEO or a... Certainly a strong entrepreneur is paid to see around the corner and a bit more long-term than just what the market will allow for today. We always think of those things as being very uh, growth-oriented and business innovation around that entrepreneurship. But an entrepreneur also doesn't ever want to put undue risk on the company. And once you go through a situation where you're close to the line, like obviously Rupert Murdoch did... You never go back there again because you want to protect the base as you grow.
2: Exactly. And and then you hope that that transfers to the, the management that takes over for them later, whether it be, you know, his children or professional managers. And, and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, there are other families that have been much more aggressive through the years and stayed in high yield. name I mean, of the Dolans operated that way for a long time mm-hmm. with uh, Cablevision. And when they every time the credit looked like it deserved an upgrade, they would take money out of the business. So there's different levels of comfort. But, you know, they started with, you know, very meek beginnings as well. This comes into play. I mean, I I would say, you know, from a governance perspective, we often will look at companies and have sort of the static view that controlled entities are, are, are negative. But my experience, frankly, within the media business has been, you know, sometimes it's a negative and sometimes it's a positive. It depends on who they are. So it's important to know them.
1: Yeah, and it's a balancing act. People don't necessarily appreciate how much of a balancing act being a allocator of capital or a public company CEO or an owner is today, because clearly you're one constituent in in assessing the health and risk of the balance sheet and what can be done versus vis-a-vis the debt as a source of capital, especially with low interest rates. It's very tempting, but there's also the dynamic of appeasing shareholders. We're Uh, very biased. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And our job is to look at the holistic set of opportunities and, and obviously the companies do that on their own. And I think there was a time post-financial crisis where there was for sure a move to pay down debt and eliminate risk because that's a natural thing to do once you go through a a shock like we did in 2008, 2009. But then over time, that became that yielded towards the stocks, the share buybacks, the dividends, and maybe overextended there. And now we're getting into, obviously, a healthy M&A cycle. These are generalized sort of cyclical comments I'm making. But it was, in my mind, a tip to the bottom market first to undo and alleviate risk. Then it was a move into the equity markets to, to really drive multiples and obviously give back capital to shareholders. And then it obviously yielded to a strong M&A cycle, which we're in now. And trying to get more of a balance between all those markets is, uh, I think, a very tricky exercise for a CEO.
2: You know, fear and greed affect the debt markets just as much as they do the equity markets. I think you're absolutely correct in your comments. You know, we see those waves. Our role is we're a bystander. We're, we're the only ones in the business that don't really have an axe to grind. You know, whether it's one rating higher, one rating lower, it doesn't really have the same impact on us as it certainly does the issuers, investors, and the people, the bankers who are putting together the deals. Broadly speaking, you know, we would prefer companies to invest in their business. If given the choice of buying back stock versus making an acquisition, of some assets and a business that's going to help company grow or defend it against disruption, we'd always prefer that they did that. They made those types of investments. So that's not always consistent with the way the equity markets behave.
1: Correct. You know, you've been around the business for a long time. So I think you, in my opinion, and my experience with you, appreciate the uh, fundamental challenges and opportunities that the companies have. While on one hand, stock buybacks and dividends are probably the worst thing that you want to see paying down debt for the sake of just alleviating Risk is also probably not what you're counting on because you do appreciate the fact that there is a moment of change and whether it's an investment in a business that could grow and diversify the current portfolio or an M&A cycle, which can bolster the company's asset mix, something probably that you appreciate knowing the company's fundamentals more
2: than most. Is that right? I'd say so. I mean, you know, we're in the stable ratings business. And so we don't want to do round trips, take a company down. We're not there to slap them on the hand. We're trying to find the, the rating that's gonna survive the longest. And sometimes that requires you to take a rating down because you think the company's changed their financial policy. Other times the company's making an acquisition, they're taking on outsized leverage for a period of time. And so we hold the ratings. It's just a question of how much of time, how much time do you give them? How much do you trust them? And sometimes it's too long, the longer it takes, the greater chance there's going to be other outside forces that could change the trajectory of the plan. And so you have to take them down anyway. That's the trickiest part of, of what we do. There is a lot of confidence involved in that. There's some people you've dealt with for a long time and, and you know this is important to them. And there's others that you don't really know as well or or the experience has not been as consistent.
1: Yeah, but how does it work? I mean, Moody's, who are your constituents? Are they the bond investors that re- are relying on you to assess the risk beyond their own internal work, or are the issuers that are your clients effectively? Yeah,
2: you know, that's a really good question. I think that I try to operate in the shoes of the investors, okay? Because uh, essentially, that's where my sympathies lie. If in fact are, we're expecting one thing and something else happens, those are the people that are using our ratings and our research. But we have relationships with issuers, and sometimes it's it's a long-standing very transparent relationship that it's important to build a certain level of trust and transparency and commitment and keeping those commitments over time can be a very strong relationship or a very weak one for that matter. But ultimately I think they know that we're sort of acting on behalf of bondholders, debt holders broadly. And, you know, they're not always happy with what we do either. I mean, as you said before, it's often a thankless job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would assume that like everything, the relationship and the knowledge base that you have with each other is paramount because if an issuer comes to you and you know the company and the individuals very well over a long period of time, you may give them more leeway in taking on more risk if it's consistent with your view of their strategy, their plan, and where you think they're going, plus your knowledge of the industry, versus someone that you don't know that well or it's a new first-time issuer, you may not give much
2: of a leash. I feel very strongly that way, Ari. I think that look, we're always learning. In this business, uh, I do come across new companies all the time that are disruptors and are entering the fold or new businesses that are entering the, you know, raising debt for the first time on their own. Like, say, for example, a video game business. We've only been rating the large companies there for four or five years now. But it is very important for us to have a good understanding of their business, to handicap. If you don't, you're going to likely tend to be more conservative if you don't fully understand the business. So, you know, we we try to engage and we try to close that gap as best we can. But having a, a long history in an industry, you know, where I can sit down, I don't have to do as much preparation because I just know the questions that have to be asked. And I know what's going on in the sector. It does inform our research and it does inform our ratings. And I provide a lot of benefit to investors who don't have that same experience.
1: Even though you publish your views and you update your views as you learn new information and obviously can change ratings, et cetera. The conversations that you have with issuers are private conversations. Is that right?
2: Yes, they are. I mean, we have been exempt from Reg FD and that gives companies, the issuers, a an opportunity to share their plans, you know, beyond what they're sharing to the public. And we're very careful to make sure that we don't inadvertently disclose sensitive non-public information. But it is important that, you know, we have a good sense of what they're thinking, what their plan is. And so... You know, it's buried in the rating. It really is. We, you know, we leave it the rating. That all is a function of the rating over the long term. That does, frankly, give us an opportunity to be even more educated about the business, being able to kick the tires harder.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're in a very trustworthy position, um, given the fact that you're accumulating all of this information, and a lot of it private information, and then publishing a view that protects that private information yet gives an answer to what people are looking for, which is your assessment of risk. And so embedded within your rating and your research is a lot more information than any investor would get on their own, but you're giving them a sense of your perspective of where the world's going or where the issuer is going, right?
2: Clearly when there's a transaction of some sort or a sort of a hard decision, we're going to buy back X amount of stock or we're going to acquire X company. You know that's pretty cut and dry. But beyond that, we like to see you know what their plan is, uh, their budgets. A lot of times, they'll even share their board presentations with us, with their long range forecasts. It's so helpful to look at the assumptions. Yeah. Now, sometimes it's very meaningful, and it looks like it's very reasonable. Other times, frankly, you know we look at the assumptions and we shake our heads and, and we essentially we find them less useful. It really depends on how aggressive they are. And I would say, for the investment grade companies I cover, they tend to be in the former camp where they tend to be fairly reasonable, and they know that this is a long standing relationship, and they want me to be confident and they want to deliver as you move down the rating spectrum deeper into high yield they we tend to see them as more aggressive, expectations of you know the new owners' private equity uh, and they're trying to get their capital out as quickly as they can, and that's how they're going to get their return to be more than their expectations and their investors' expectations by pulling the capital out and levering up even more. And a lot of times they need more aggressive forecasts to achieve that.
1: Yeah. Can our listeners or the CEOs of companies or investors easily get access to Moody's ratings or at least assessment of what the categories of those ratings are today, whether it's single B, double B, triple, triple B, et cetera, and how those are changing in terms of, do you put out any kind of diagnostic or overall kind of market report?
2: We have a couple of folks that, particularly in high yield, that spend most of their time just doing that. We also put out information around things like liquidity. We have an index on speculative grade liquidity. In fact, when we were formulating that part of our assessments on companies, and we started putting that in index, we realized that actually liquidity strength is a very good predictor of that turn in that cycle. When we looked at it post the financial downturn, it looked like several quarters ahead of time it was already predicting very bad things coming. Yeah. We put out a lot of Again, research. Again, very,
1: very strong companies could have risk on the balance sheet or in their liquidity, which obviously can overwhelm.
2: It's binary. I yeah. mean, uh, either you have it or you don't. It's like confidence. You know, So we put out a lot of research around this. You know, We have default studies that go back 50, 60 years or more. We have a liquidity index. We're constantly putting out information broadly about trends in, around private equity and, frankly, the ratings overall by industry and then across all industries in corporate finance.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like you're more conservative than you used to be or more aggressive than you used to be? Because we always get the question what's the line between an investment grade credit and a high yield or speculative grade credit in terms of leverage ratios. And obviously it depends on the company, depends on the industry and so on. But is that line getting more flexible or is it getting more contracted?
2: I don't think that it's been dictated for me by sort of my experience in the industry, but it is changing for certain parts of the industry based upon what's going on in their industry. So, for example, cable, we used to, I remember at one time in the 90s, I think there was a, the bright line was for a company of a decent size in that business, it was around five times to be investment grade. Five times
1: debt to EBITDA ratio.
2: TCI fought hard to, to sustain that. And frankly, they weren't generating any cash flow back then all the cash was going into extending their plant to growing the business. It was basically upgrading and extending, basically.
1: Not paying taxes. <laughs> Certainly they didn't
2: pay any taxes. We forbear during that period of time, allowed the higher leverage and looked past the lack of free cash flow because they were investing in the business. So sometimes we'll do that. Now, over, over time, as the business became more competitive and they've completed their upgrade cycle, you know, they started looking like other industries in terms of their competitive makeup. They weren't cyclical, but you know, there were post-satellites, telcos started getting into the business. And uh, you look where they are today, and, and they're facing threats from other disruption, you know, the Netflixes of the world, uh, virtual MVPDs. Over time, particularly if they're losing subscribers, you want to gradually bring that leverage metric in line with other equivalently rated companies in other industries.
1: So that five times barrier back in the 90s for a cable company, for example, to stay investment grade is, is what today, roughly speaking,
2: it's probably in the threes, three, three and a half times, probably around uh, to be the lower end of investment grade. So it's it's migrated, and when some of the companies, players, for example in the cable industry, breach certain penetration rates, going down, we would gradually decrease the amount of leverage they can manage. We did that with Time Warner Cable, in fact. You know, we basically said, look, if you're going to keep losing subscribers, your penetration rates continue to trend south, the amount of leverage you're going to be able to handle is going to go down very gradually, very slowly. They generate cash flow. They can mitigate that and hold their ratings. Particularly for investment companies, you want to give them a bit of a runway to manage it.
1: Yeah, I I remember the period of growth, and obviously a lot of the media companies and cable companies continue to reinvent themselves and Always create, I think, new business lines through organic investments uh, and M&A. And a lot as- of it
2: by accident, by the way. Yeah. They would never have upgraded their plan if not for a T V doubling the channel capacity that the cable companies had. They had 50 channels.
1: Yeah, they respond to the pressures of the business overall, right?
2: They had 300 megahertz. you have 6 megahertz per channel, do the math. They could have 50 channels. Suddenly, the satellite provider comes out and says, I'm going to have 100 channels. And they were going to put them out of business. So they had to upgrade, and they kind of stepped in it, so to speak. Five years later, broadband. Which became the panacea. Amazing, really. Yeah. You know, it's an amazing story when you think about it.
1: Yeah. I always say there's always been a wall of worry around the cable industry because of these pressures that are real. But then the entrepreneurial nature of the owners and the CEOs constantly understand the, the need to innovate and protect their businesses. So they continuously get into new businesses as a result of it and find new growth opportunities.
2: And the strength of their cash flow now. I mean, yeah. it's an all-time high. The headlines don't match the results right now. So what that says is they have time to reinvent themselves if need be. I mean, look, much of the industry in the media world is in this post-maturity phase. And it's very important for the dialogue to be very focused on that. I remember in the mid-90s, we went negative on the newspaper industry. It was like 95, I think it was. And for the next several years, every time we met with major executives in all the major newspapers in the country, they were very focused on, on union issues and buying 35 year-life color presses. They were sort of ignoring what was coming. So it's very important to take that lesson when you start thinking about media broadly, even the cable industry broadly going forward, and for them to be planning for the worst and hoping for the best. And the problem is, I think that historically, the structure for the business was one where there was really only one option. There was only one strategy for everybody, right? You just, you're just you trying to increase subscribers. You're trying to increase affiliate rates. You want to get carried by as many carriers as possible, whether it's telecom, whether it's satellite, whoever. And really, there was not much other options. Today, we've exploded with the amount of different options between direct-to-consumer linear, direct-to-consumer video on demand, virtual MVPD. Do I just do nothing? Do I stand still? Am I big enough? Do I have the capabilities even to do any of this on my own? It lends to a cycle of consolidation that should continue for some time. Right. Thankfully. (laughs) realizing
1: that the businesses are linked as an ecosystem. Where do you see more risk on the content channel side of the business for media or the distribution cable company side of the business?
2: Well, fortunately the network aggregators that we're talking about, they own a lot more of their content. I think that what's proving out in what's going on today and what will go on in the future is that content certainly is king. There's less of a likelihood of disintermediation by new innovators in the content creation. Well, the best they can hope for is is to operate alongside other successful studios. So Netflix is competing with HBO and they're competing with Lionsgate and they're competing with Warners and everyone else. And they're just hoping to be competitive, that people will like their shows, there'll be enough avidity in their shows as much as there is in the others. And they'll have an occasional hit, it'll be a balancing act. Whereas with distribution, when that innovates in a manner in which they cannot pivot, to me that's much more risky at this point. So we've always had that question, which is king? Is it content or distribution? And that had to do with the leverage and the negotiations between the two. But in terms of the future of the business, there are serious concerns.
1: You're more comfortable with the content side, like a Discovery Scripts owning their own IP or a Disney Fox owning their own IP, even though they get a lot of the revenue still from those distributors and they're tied together, you feel like over time that will unlock their value because they have more, more uh, possibilities?
2: You know, it's a fascinating question because you've got this dilemma of existing players in the industry which have to chew gum and juggle and, at the same time. And the problem is they have to continue their existing line of business as well as grow this new line of business, which oftentimes will cannibalize that business. Whereas a, an innovator, a disruptor like a Netflix, they don't really have an existing business they have to kind of maintain along the way to keep Wall Street happy they just have to grow the to top line and have a strategy which eventually will lead to a strong bottom line as well. The publishers had the same problem. You know, when they went digital, and they knew someday they're going to have to flick the switch and turn off the presses. But the question is, will the business B, the future, be enough to mitigate the loss in the other business? And, and how does the stock travel in between? The biggest concern I have is that a lot of these companies, as the companies reach this post-maturity phase where they have to pivot into these newer businesses, newer distribution models, and increase their investment in content dramatically, will they buy back their stock rather than make acquisitions or innovate and invest? Because oftentimes we see that mistake where you know those last few years when they should have been investing, they just thought their stock was temporarily going down. And clearly, the market saw the risk that they weren't seeing. And they were buying back a lot of stock. And you know you can't pull that back.
1: Yeah. I want to tie together something you said about TCI in the mid-90s when you first started as being a bit in a growth cycle where they reinvested capital and deferred free cash flow generation as a result of that by investing in their business. That sounds very similar to Amazon and the tech industry today, right? where Amazon, as an example, finds new areas of growth all the time and reinvests profits to create growth opportunities and to invest in growth. And that cycle continues to perpetuate. So the profits are deferred over time. And investors on the equity side, at least, have looked past that and rewarded the growth becoming, you know one of the first trillion-dollar market cap companies out there. You cover the tech industry in some areas as well, maybe not Amazon, but companies like Alphabet. And so how do you look at a balance sheet of a tech company that has so much cash and a lot of growth opportunities, seemingly endless, and rewarded by the equity markets versus the media side of the business that have more predictable cash flows and more mature in some cases that maybe are held to a tighter standard?
2: Well, we have a pretty high rating for Alphabet. It's not aaa but they're kind of where they want to be, and they want to retain their financial flexibility. So they're AA2. They're essentially two notches. That's pretty close. They were kind of on another another world compared to most of the media companies that have been around a long time and have. They're much more focused on the return on their investments and their capital than Alphabet. You know, it seems that they get away with that as long as they're growing the top line, right? I mean, as long as they can generate 20 plus percent growth and good margins and good free cash flow, and frankly, they're controlled also so they can say no if they want to, equity investors will give them a pass. I don't see any other media companies in that category today. I think that they're held to a tighter leash if they start growing their cash base. You know, they have to be concerned about activist investors, even Netflix, for that matter. They happen to be... More aggressive on the debt side, certainly, probably the only thing I could say about their strategy and how well they 've done is if I were running that company, I would probably use some more equity rather than take the risk of issuing a lot of debt. But you know, it scares people you know when I talk to the traditional media companies and a company like Amazon has suddenly bought a business outside their industry, you know they 're yelling hooray <laughs> <laughs> it 'll you know, take some time to them to focus on that it 'll be a use of management 's Time and hopefully we'll distract them a little while. Yeah. There's a fear. There really is a fear of those companies coming into the media business more aggressively. But yet they haven't made any acquisitions in content at all, or frankly, much into distribution other than, you know, investing directly like Google Fiber.
1: Well, the content side, they've bought rights and sports rights. They've started on that front, right?
2: They have, but it's still pretty small. Yeah. Uh, at this point, you think they might have bought some libraries or some capabilities to grow. Do you think that'll happen at some point? You know, we thought it would happen a long time ago. The fact that it hasn't so far suggests it's less and less likely over time. And and to be honest, I think what Netflix has done without making any material acquisitions is really startling. The green light process is one where you have people who are talented and be able to recognize something which will be popular or have good quality and you have a balance sheet. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the other companies see that. And it probably makes buying a studio or a library less important. Yeah.
1: I wanted to touch on tax for a minute because the U.S. tax code has changed where the corporate tax rate has gone now from 35% to 21%, which has uh, certainly given companies more financial flexibility and power. And on an after-tax basis, made debt a bit more expensive. So how do you think about the TMT companies taking the proceeds or the incremental benefits of the tax code changes vis-a-vis um, use of proceeds and leverage reduction or MA or stock buybacks. How does that factor into your thinking?
2: It factors into our thinking quite a bit. I mean, you look at the additional free cash flow that, let's just take Disney and Comcast because they've been sort of very active this year, into consideration. We actually expanded the amount of leverage, the amount of debt, to EBITDA that they could carry by about a quarter return for both companies. It appears to me that it has helped embolden them in their thinking going forward about how much debt they can take on, even temporarily, and how much they can spend on, on acquisitions. I think that was probably an important force behind the activity we've seen this year surrounding Fox. So for that end of the credit spectrum, it's a tremendous opportunity for these companies. It's a tremendous opportunity for companies like AT&T and Verizon as well where they have very high dividends, which are somewhat problematic in contrast to their free cash flow, it's outsized and will allow them a greater opportunity to reduce debt in the future. The other side of the equation, however, is in the high yield space where these companies are either not paying much or any taxes, the NOLs aren't as worth as much to them. And in fact, if they are very, very levered, there's a restriction that will come in a few years how much interest they can deduct it actually could have a negative effect, very chilling effect on many of those companies.
1: Yeah, it levels the playing field a bit, right? Because we used to think about the non-taxpayers as having an advantage, which are primarily the high yield players because they have a depreciation cycle where they're not generating the profits and not paying the taxes and therefore have more flexible uses of their free cash flow vis-à-vis debt paydowns and acquisitions, et cetera, stock buybacks. But now the taxpayers, like you mentioned, AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, others, now have a an incremental benefit themselves which helps to level the playing field there.
2: Yeah, and, and in a rising rate environment, the amount of interest that companies will pay will surely rise. Most high yield companies are, you know, paying a floating rate borrowing from banks or with shorter duration. If you take that rising rate base environment and you think that hey, maybe the credit spreads will also widen out at some point in time, maybe there's some disruption. It makes you think that there's probably a reasonable expectation that Some companies may gravitate towards sort of at least the higher end of single B, if not at least a BA, sort of the higher echelon of high yield where they can still sort of manage to provide outsized returns for their equity. But the interest will be largely more deductible and affordable for them. Yeah, And so, I mean, that's a reasonable expectation, but who knows? You know, the market will dictate that.
1: So in closing, Neil, you are uh, paid to worry. (laughs) Uh, So
2: what are you worried about these days? Um, I worry about this post-maturity phase for the aggregators, the network aggregators. Further down the road, I worry about the possible effect of 5G on broadband for cable companies. I'm very excited about the future of the Internet of Things, but I think that most of that is surrounding the commercial opportunities there. And we're going to first see the effects on the consumer side, which will have a more dramatic effect on existing broadband providers. I think that consumers are becoming very powerful in the decision tree here, like never before in in the media space. We never used to think much about it. And now, you know, with the prospect of a 5G, which could have, uh, you know, we don't know. In five years, let's just say it could be 5, 10, maybe 20% of the urban and suburban markets could be reached by fixed wireless. And Most people are going to say, well, I'm going to take that product no matter what. So really the question is whether I keep my cable or not. And for a consumer, even if they ramp up the broadband speeds in cable, they don't really care. It's either going to work or it's not going to work. For commercial, I think it's a different animal. But if it works and I get all the channels and all the other things I want to get online, it's not going to matter. And so there could be pressure on that revenue stream unless these guys decide to get into wireless. You know, we'll have to see what happens with Timo and Sprint. We don't think that deal gets done just based upon past experiences. The Which fact, is a bit contrary to the market overall. Right? I suppose it is. And frankly, the regulators are a little harder to expect. Things have shocked us in the past few years that, you know, I've never seen before. Sometimes you're not quite sure. And sometimes you're really positive. Like I thought the Comcast Time Warner deal was going to get done. Passed regulators uh, at the same time. I didn't think AT&T was going to be able to buy T-Mobile a number of years ago, and the government said we want four players in this business, and there still really are just four players. So I, I can't help but think, from a consumer's perspective, that that deal gets shot down. So then, after that, what happens? I can't help but think that you know, as five G progresses and as we start seeing what the capabilities are, if it becomes more challenging, there is a greater chance for convergence between those industries between companies in the cable business, which have lots of fiber and coax that can support 5G and wireless. Well, Neil, thank you for
1: being here, but also thank you for the role that you've been playing all these years and that you'll continue to play in the evolution of the industries that we're focused on. And and it's certainly a critical moment to be thinking about risk from a debt perspective and also as it correlates to industry fundamentals and changes and our worlds intersect on the M&A side uh, now, but they've always intersected through research and through uh, an appreciation of these entrepreneurial industries. So thanks for
2: being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Ari. It's, It's great to see you. Thank you very much.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time.
2: Audiation.